Ladies and gentlemen, your Stanley Cup champion, St. Louis Blues. Thank you to uh, Gary Harrelson, our photo editor, for putting together the slideshow. Thank you to J.B. Forbes, who took so many wonderful photos throughout the Stanley Cup playoffs. Yeah. I'm happy to welcome you all here tonight. Please know that none of this is possible without you, the fans, the readers of the paper. Um, you guys mean a lot to us and help us bring this kind of coverage to you. So thank you to yeah. you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. As I get started here tonight, I want to first of all say thank you to our sponsor, uh, Scotsman's Coin and Jewelry, uh, for backing up this event and making it helping us make this possible. And I just real briefly would like to introduce you to our panel tonight. Uh, I'll start to my right here, J.B. Forbes, photographer. Jim Thomas. St. Louis Blues beat writer. Yeah, JT. Tom Timmerman, St. Louis Blues beat writer. And then at the end of the table, I've got three of our columnists, Ben Fredrickson, <laughs> Jeff Gordo Gordon, <laughs> and Benjamin Hockman. Bum, bum, bum. Outstanding. Okay, before we open it up to questions from all of you, and we, we want your questions uh, so you guys can pick their brains a little bit about what they've been through over the last few months covering this team and get their insights. Uh, but I've asked each of them, uh, one question that I wanted them to share with you their thoughts on before we get started and the question was this to all of them it was that these guys have covered many many major sporting events and I asked them can you think of a special moment or memory that you will carry with you from this Stanley Cup journey and I am going to start with J.B. Forbes. Well, I'd say that, is that working? That uh, for me it was uh, on the, after the second trip to Boston, after uh, the boys had lost badly in St. Louis, and I went down to the rink and they were practicing before the game and they were all so loose and they were smiling and they were laughing and joking and I thought this is a team that that is that doesn't have their head down they they've still very confident and I could see that um, uh, they were ready to take on another game and and to me I, I sort of compared the two teams to, to two prize fighters that Boston was the older established heavier um, prize fighter who, who um, had gotten a little tired and even though they'd given the Blues their best punches uh, the Blues just kept coming back and that's exactly what they did and that's exactly what they look like. Thank you. 
I would say it was the 932nd time I heard Gloria. It, <laughs> it really struck me. No, no, joking. So we're in the press box. It's game seven, TD Garden in Boston. Normally, the Blues scratches for that night, healthy and otherwise, and the uh, front office are in a suite. But they just happened to be right next to where we were all sitting in the press box. And we could hear some of the scouts like encouraging the players, getting on players. Obviously, the players couldn't hear them during the game and cheering when the, when the Blues scored a goal and whatnot. But so that it's two to nothing. And you all know the third goal, as Tom Timmerman has, uh, has told me on many occasions, is the most important goal in hockey when you have, have that two nothing lead. And it's two nothing, and you're thinking, okay, Boston gets a goal, this game could turn on a dime. So Braden Shen scores that goal. There's only eight and a half minutes left. And, and again, we're in the press box. They're literally, Robert Thomas is like right there. But the code of conduct is you don't stare at him. You, don't, you do their job and you let them do your thing. But I couldn't help looking. After Braden Shen's goal, all of a sudden, it's three to nothing. There's only eight and a half minutes left. And just the reaction, just the snapshot, just a little glimpse of looking over there, they knew they were going to win the cup right there. And just the, that impact, the, the reaction, it was, it was just tremendous. And it'll, it'll always stick with me. Good stuff. So some of you may have seen this on Twitter, because I think I tweeted a picture of it. But in the press room in Boston, on game days, they had the board of donuts. And they had this, it was about a six foot by four foot board which had donuts on it and gigantic donuts that's one of the memories that i will take from this because they were really good donuts and they were huge i mean they were everything you could want in a donut as for hockey uh as for that side of it one of the unique things about the stanley cup final is that when the when the game is over when the series is over for game seven or whatever is the decisive game of the final you do the post-game interviews on the ice so after they have handed out the cup and, and the celebration has gone on, they let all the reporters onto the ice. And you go out there and interview people while they are running around, skating around with the cup. And you're walk the ice, I will say, by that point is so thoroughly chewed up that there's no risk at all of slipping. But it's, it's just an amazing thing that you are in, this guy, in these guys' world, in their element. Uh, and... Uh, you know, the, the, you know, it kind of, you feel bad interrupting celebrations to ask questions, but there you are amid the middle of it. And I will say, as opposed to baseball celebrations, which I've covered many of, there, there's no champagne on the ice, and so you don't have to worry about being blinded uh, by champagne. But, but because if you've ever had champagne in your eyes, it sting, it burns, it's not good. But hockey, I mean, you're out there on the ice with them in the midst of their celebration, and that's just a great experience to have to be out there with them among them. And donuts. There's no champagne on the ice, but there's beer at the parade. Um, lots of it. And for me, it will be kind of the parade image of, of seeing Robert Thomas just housing a you know, tall boy of Bud Light while a, while a police officer is so excited to be with Robert Thomas that he's taking a selfie with him, as as everyone, and I think, oh, that's a really cool image. Everybody's together, and then you realize Robert Thomas is 19. <laughs> <laughs> 
and that that was kind of the, mid, the, the to me the image that I'll remember of the parade. It was like everything, all bets were off. Everybody was there to have fun, and everybody was probably a little sloppy drunk. But nobody, you know, some knuckleheads got arrested for being too too overserved. But it was a great event, and the city the city did not get in trouble. There was nothing really over overly bad. It was just a party, and and I'll remember that about the parade for sure. Yeah. Yeah, two things real quick. The uh, the parade memory was uh, a catatonic Vince Dunn. <laughs> so at the end of the parade, he was just wandering around, didn't know what to do, and then he suddenly noticed this 12-foot-high fence with a bunch of people behind it. <laughs> that was blocking off Memorial Drive, and he ran to the fence, leaped on it, climbed all the way over up to the fence, got on top like he was going into the ring uh, for one of those cage matches. He was going to go in to rescue somebody. And... I'm just teetering like teeter-totter on the top of this 12-foot-high fence. I'm thinking, well, that's kind of dangerous, and he's recovering from a broken jaw, but he, he, I'm sure he has no memory of that, but I'm like, okay, that's what it's like to be really happy. Um, as far as the hockey goes, having seen so many failures over the years, I think the one near failure where I thought that it was going to end, and that was, I wrote about it, the, the, the Rupe Hintz moment where they bombard Ben Bishop with like a million shots. It would have been such a blues way to lose at the end of regulation of game seven for Rupe Hintz to convert that wraparound and, and send Dallas home a winner and send the blues back to another summer. But Jay Bomeister reached the stick in, stopped the play, and that was one of the many near misses that went the blues way. And I, you, you finally realize that this could happen, this could be a team of destiny. And after watching Steve Eiserman from the blue line and Joe Sackick from the blue line and Nick Kiprios falling on Grant Fuhr, you're just waiting for the Rupe Hintz moment, right? And it didn't happen. And the fact that it didn't made me think, finally, Stanley Cup could happen. Honestly, for me, well, first of all, they took all the good answers. So, uh... For me, as a journalist, just being able to work with these guys and, 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 and women and from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, like, this is as cheesy as it'll get, but it was like such a special experience for me as a journalist and as a St. Louisan together. So, I'll, I mean, it was the coolest thing I'll ever cover. Like we always say, like, they could win again, but, and it'll be awesome, but it won't be as cool as the first. And we all got to experience it in our own ways. I guess uh, an anecdote that I can share that uh, just happened yesterday that I was able to witness was they brought the Stanley Cup to the Cardinals clubhouse. And they brought out the 2011 World Series trophy. And it was just so special to see these two, uh, these two things that, that mean so much to so many people next to each other. It was like this, I wrote in the paper, it was like when Nelly met Chuck Berry, like this amazing meeting of St. Louis icons. And Yadier Molina, who of course has won two World Series championships, is in many of these people's hearts in here, a St. Louis icon. To watch Yadier Molina as essentially an 11-year-old boy with his eyes wide, looking at the Stanley Cup, and then the guy said, do you want to lift it? And Yachty's like, are you sure? Like, this look on his face, like, you're going to let me lift the cup? And he did, and he held it up, and he was a little wobbly, and he said it was heavy, and it was such a special moment because even the greatest of St. Louis athletes were touched by the St. Louis Blues, let alone every single St. Louisan. 
Thanks, guys. Thanks for sharing those memories. Um, unless um, anyone wants to hear Ben Fredrickson do his impersonation of Brett Hull singing Gloria. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you want to you give us a bar or two? Maybe later. Okay. All right. Other than that, uh, Tracy, are you out here? Let's open up to you guys, and here's some of your questions for these guys. And um, so let's open it up. Who's got some questions for them? Coming. You're in the VIP section. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering if you interviewed any of the other alumni behind the scenes, Sutter, uh, Bob Basson, my favorite, Joey Mullen, or any of the other alumni, and any quotes from them on what this meant to them? Sure, uh, I didn't get to meet Bob, well, I saw Bob Basson in the Dallas uh, lunchroom, and I, and I felt like, like I was 11 years old, there's Bob Basson. Uh, I did not, unfortunately, get to talk to, talk to him. Uh, though I know many uh, aunts and grandmas, current aunts and grandmas loved Bob Basson, from my recollection of the uh, of that era. No, but I mean, getting to interview the uh, the alumni was one of the coolest parts of it. The Blues alumni is unlike most other professional sports teams. These guys are part of the team. They're around all the time. It's almost like the uh, the guy that was like the star quarterback in high school, and then like goes to junior college and flunks out and just kind of starts hanging around the football team. We all remember him. Well, that's what, that's what Brett Hall was and Kelly Chase. And it was, it was really fun. Um, yeah, I, I love talking to all the alumni, but especially talking to Brett Hall after they beat the Sharks. And for him to say, I've won the Stanley Cup before. I scored the winning goal to win the Stanley Cup. And I'm happier right now than I was then. That's pretty cool. And he really was happier. He was yeah. so happy. I don't know why. He just kept smiling and he was sweating. I know it was weird. He it, went. It, it was amazing to see the reaction of all the alumni. I mean, just, uh, just amazing. And, and Bobby Plager, who reminds me, he's like the hockey version of Jim Hannafin. There's never, there's no such thing as a, a short conversation with Bobby Plager. And the same with... Uh, with, uh, with Jim Hannafin. I did try to reach Red Berenson right before the Stanley Cup started, but his wife answered the phone, said he was off on a canoe trip up in the wilderness of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and, and didn't have his phone, so I, I never got to talk to uh, Red Berenson, but uh, uh, there's always another day and more phone calls that can be made. Can you talk about the phenomenon of Gloria and the effect that it had on the team and the fans and the city, and then end with whether you think it should continue into next year? <laughs> no. You were there at the beginning, Jim. You were there on day one. Now, I'm not going to brag about the Post-Dispatch, but no, I am. Uh, I don't think Gloria would be known if we didn't have the resources and the backing of management to cover every game. Home, away, preseason, postseason, regular season. We're the only media outlet that does that. And, and it's not, you know, it's not inexpensive. So thank you for your support. But it's the 
I think it's the third game of the winning streak, of the 11-game winning streak that really kind of made this all happen. I go down to the locker room in Florida. They had just rallied from a 2 to nothing deficit, some of you may remember the game, to, in the third period. And one of the Blues' early problems was the fact that they couldn't close out games early on. Jake Allen said, we almost get afraid in the third period, and he, and he was right. Craig Berube said the team was fragile. Well, anyway, they win a game in Florida. I go down to the locker room, one of my favorite 22-year-olds who treats me like I'm a dad that's kind of lost in the Stone Age, Vince Dunn. I hear the song Gloria playing, and I'm like, you guys just have a big win and you celebrate with disco music? And so I wrote about it, and so that was a, the first seven, if you buy our book, there's a little story about it uh, for sale over there, I think. But that's the first anyone had written about it or noticed it, and then Rams PR picked up on it, and they put it on digital, and the whole Gloria phenomenon may not have been out there had the, uh, the Post-Dispatch not had somebody at the game, and it was just curiosity. You're 22, you have all these young kids, and they're, they're playing a disco song. Now, you can debate whether it was disco, because 1982 was kind of the end of disco was more late, but... I'm calling it a, uh, did I say Rams? Blues. 25 years of covering the Rams. You it's know. got Rams PTSD. It's hard to, yeah. hard to uh, remove all that. Now, your interesting question is, and I'd be curious what these guys say, what, what do you do with Gloria next year? I think, cut the cord, move on. What do you, yeah. what do you guys say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it needs to be preserved for this moment in time. And this was, this was the 2018, 2019 they can have a new song for, for next season, but that's, that team has that song, and they, they go together forever. My guess is you'll hear it one more time at Enterprise Center, and that's when they lift up the banner, and we'll all sing along, and then that'll be it for uh, Gloria. I thought it should be retired as well, and then I heard the Brett Hull remix, and now I'm okay with it being played whenever <laughs> they want. As long as it's the Brett Hull remix, I'm good. <laughs> it's outstanding. I played it today multiple times. My, my question for all of you is, uh, Gloria is fine, but w why Country Roads, West Virginia? Uh, oh, it's, uh, Ben Fred likes it, that's why. I, it's, it's a nice song, but don't we have a Missouri song that we can uh, promote? Uh, yeah. Ben Fred, you, tell, you talk about it, it's your favorite. I have strong opinions about this, but um, it works, I guess. It, it developed somewhat naturally. I don't understand it. Uh, I think it's very odd. I don't know why it continues but i feel like that's not going away i think that's going to be around to stay i don't i don't get a why now the power play dance i am a fan of i, I do like the power play dance roger likes it too <laughs> i got caught on the jumbotron doing the power play dance. <laughs> we've got another question I have a question about Craig Bruby, um, early on in the streak of the 11 game winning streak, coming over as the 11, or as the interim head coach, how he had a great demeanor about him behind the bench, and he just seemed really trustworthy. I don't know if y'all could add for us anything behind closed doors of just the mindset he had early on bringing the Blues back from a season that looked like he was going down the hole. And you've got to use his words. <laughs> <laughs> I just... Well, I'll tell one quick story about the, the only time during the postseason I saw Chief laugh. And it was because of, well, it was the twice. I saw it once on video where he made the urinal joke about Carl Gunnarsson. <laughs> and the other time was not on video. We were leaving the, the press conference in San Jose. 
and it was right after Doug Armstrong, who had not really talked much, had a presser. So we had to ask him about Bruby. You've got this coach. You're in the you're in the you know the Western Conference Final, and he's still your interim coach. And Army kind of goes, look, we got a list of one. By that time, we all knew, and he kind of basically confirmed he was going to be the head coach. So we walk out of the press conference. And, and Jim, Jim Thomas goes to Bruby, and I'll tell the PG version, well, you're going to have a hard time screwing this up. And Bruby just, like, lets out this laugh. And I was like, oh, my God, he can laugh. So that was, that was interesting. But I think the, the thing with, I noticed with, with Bruby was just the range. He could be the fiery, you know, he could pump you up. We saw him yelling at officials or opponents, and the guys really resonated with that. But he could also be the arm over the shoulder Hey, stick with it. We saw him do that with Tarasenko. He he could motivate with with you know terror or with uh, with positivity. And I think he know he had a g- great feel for which guy needed which. Uh, we saw him really get to Vladimir Tarasenko in the Western Conference Final. He said he needs to play better, and we need more away, more from him away from the puck. And Vladdy really took off after that. And I think that combined with his X's and O's, he made a lot of great calls, pulled a lot of good levers, and pressed the right buttons throughout the the postseason. But He's a motivator, and not just in terms of fire. I mean, he's he knows he knows different chords on that scale. And I, I say it like this: the guys the guys don't think he's going to beat them up, but they know that he can if he wanted to. Uh, and the, and that I think that there's, that's a good position of to lead from. Uh, two, not this season, but the season before, we were in Colorado. Mike Yo was still the head coach, and. Uh, Mike's son was going to college in, in the Denver area. So his family was there for the game. And so after the game, uh, Mike was talking to his family. And so the, he sent Craig, who at the time was the associate head coach, out to talk. Uh, and basically, he was to talk to me. And if, if you ever watch, if you stay up and watch the Fox Sports Midwest postgame show, when they play Craig Berube's comments, it's essentially Craig Berube talking to the Post-Dispatch because we're, we ask almost all the questions. And if any of you were watching that game, I asked Craig a question and the answer was basically like, yes. And I got a series of, of four, like four questions and there were maybe like 12 word answers, you know, 12 answers, 12 words in total. At which point I was like, this is going nowhere. This, this is not, this is just not anything. So I said, all right, Craig, thank you very much. And I moved on and we, I went and talked to somebody else. I felt sorry for you that night. Yeah. You know, Craig Berube, counting minor league and NHL, 450 fights as a player. You can look them up on YouTube. The players told, told us right, when, right after, shortly after he became head coach, sometimes in the locker room, they would look at the fights on YouTube, but all the while keeping an eye on the door because they were afraid Berube would come in and catch him. <laughs> looking at the fights and might take it out of them. You know, kind of like when you were kids and you were, it was bedtime and you're in bed and you're listening to the old transistor radio, now I'm dating myself, and that's what they were like. I will say, those, this year we were in Ottawa and it was, it was after the morning skate and I was talking to Craig and then the TV and radio guys came over and, and Craig has two sessions, one where he talks to print reporters and then another where he talks to the broadcasters, Chris Kerber, Joe Vitale, Darren Pang, John Kelly. And that conversation just broke out when I was there. And it turns out that in situations like that, Craig Berube is expansive. And he talked at length and he told funny stories and things about growing up. And, and it was like, 
wait a second, I, I've never met this man before. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to a total stranger right now. And, and it was something. So what we see of Craig Berube in his very short and, and concise answers, he, he, he can be, and he is, just not on camera or not talking to print journalists who are writing down what he says, uh, quite witty and charming and friendly and cordial and, and expansive and kept talking. And I was amazed right there that they're like, wow, this is, this is, this is the other side of Craig Berube uh, that, we, that we don't always see, that you guys don't see, uh, because I certainly don't see it very often. So, um, you know, he is, as Ben Fred said, I mean, he, he can bring things out in a number of ways. Um, you know, I never fear, you know, that he's going to haul off and hit me. But, um, uh, but he does have that, that image about him, that, that persona, that he's a tough guy. He's the toughest guy in the room. I've got another question. This one's for uh, Jim Thomas. You've been lucky enough to cover two championships uh, as a beat writer, the Rams and the Blues. Uh, which one seemed more special to you, and what similarities between the two can you share? Well, first off, last year at this time, or a little before, I was referred to by everyone, including Doug Armstrong, as the jinx, because I'd covered 10 bad years of Rams football. Now, all of a sudden, I'm the good luck charm. So I'm here to say I never scored a goal or made a save. I had absolutely nothing to do with it. But uh, some people back there, I, I was talking to earlier just about the differences. And the one thing about hockey is the game moves so fast, very fast and uh, more access, I, I just the ability to talk to coaches and players before a game, that, that's unheard of in football. So the access is, is much better. And the other thing is, uh, you know, in terms of like a home life, the routine of covering hockey is there's no routine. My wife would have no idea when I was on the road, like what city, what I was doing in football, especially with the, the Rams, not, not too often on prime time. There was always a game on Sunday, Tuesday was always the players' day, day off. Wednesday was always the first day of practice. Saturday was always your day off as a rider because there was no access or you'd be traveling on the road, but hockey is just chaotic. One other thing I want to say after it was almost 30 years of covering football, I couldn't have named, other than the Blues, when I took over the beat, I couldn't have named 30 players in the National Hockey League. You, you've heard of the, like the two-year-old ask their parents 400 questions a day. I asked this man probably 1,000 questions a day. And Tom really just kind of helped me get my arms around hockey. And I, I couldn't be more grateful uh, to Tom Timmerman. So thank you for that, Tom. Hey, Tom. Thank you, Jim. Okay, I know there's questions. Raise your hand. There we go. I couldn't remember where I was going. Oh, um, first of all, I wanted to thank you guys. I read the sports page every morning before I read the front page, which is very depressing. Yeah. So uh, I've, I've had a lot of fun. You guys are terrific writers. I write myself, so I, I really enjoy good writing. Um, one thing I'll say, and um, you should comment on, uh, I've been a fan since day one, since the franchise was founded. And I bring this up because you mentioned Nick Kiprios injury Grant Fuhrer. Yeah. And uh, 
If you watch it, Kiprios was hit so he would fall straight forward, and I mean fall straight forward, and he dove to his left at a 23 and a half degree angle to land on Fuhrer's leg and, and knocking Fuhrer out of the game series, beat the Blues. So you, you watch that again. And what was the question? Oh. <laughs> Jeff, uh, some people won't let go. Will no, they? no, no, no. <laughs> people see Kiprios on TV now; they just get angry. It's like, oh man, <laughs> that could have been the year. You never know with Grant Fuhr. Yeah. Oh, wait, you had a question. I, I interviewed Nick Kiprios um, in Boston. I interviewed Nick, Nick Kiprios in Boston, and he said he was one of the few analysts who, in September, picked the St. Louis Blues to win the Stanley Cup. So at least he was on your side this year. And you did too. They cleared out their two bad contracts. The Blues cleared out the two bad yeah, contracts. Sabatka and and Berglund. Yeah. Then they 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 signed a bunch of good players. Then they traded for O'Reilly, okay? And they and they went up to the cap. So talent-wise, they had as much talent as anybody else in the league. So my friends here will tell you I was predicting the Blues would win right. the Cup this year. I can't believe you had bad-mouthed Patrick Berglund. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I hated the big Swede. First off, oh. Ben, Ben... You guys look a lot better on radio, I want to tell you. Thank that. you, thank you. <laughs> Roger, thank you for running the column from the Boston newspaper. It gave us another perspective on what was going on out there, and I thought that was a wonderful move. And they did the same thing out at the Boston Globe. They were running our column. We did a better job of it, though, than they did. <laughs> Having said that, you very seldom do you get a chance to welcome a new championship and knocking old ass on his butt. I think it's become apparent you guys have all covered football, and now you've covered hockey. We've heard so many stories about this one had a strained wrist, this one had bad ribs, this one had this. As a, can you imagine a football player playing with any of these injuries? And, and what I think from here on in, it's... At a level, we may not win the cup every year, probably won't, but we're going to maintain a level now. And I don't think that was ever going to be true of the Rams. So thanks for the reporting that you do, the photojournalism. And I want to say one last thing. You guys are all journalists. And I'll just say it. This country cannot exist without journalists. So thank you for doing the job that you do. Thank you for saying that. And one of the things you just touched on, the photojournalism, I just would like to ask JB uh, one question, and that's, of all the things you shoot, you don't just shoot sports, you shoot a lot of different things. Is, is there a major difference in a hockey game which is moving so quickly, and you're trying to capture just the right shots? What are the like, challenges of shooting? I mean, we, we've seen so many of your pictures. What are the challenges? Of, of, of getting those shots in hockey? Well, I, I've been at the Post-Dispatch since 1975, so I've covered 
World Series and Super Bowls, and also I covered the Spirit basketball team when they first got here. Wow. Yeah, that was that goes back a little ways. But um, hockey is my favorite of, of any sport to cover, and my boss, Gary Harrelson, is here somewhere. Gary, and at the start of the season, I came to Gary and said, I'd like to cover the, the hockey team this year. We've had a, uh, a wonderful sports photographer named Chris Lee for 19 years, and at this time last year, he took a buyout and left the post. And so he left us with, without his wonderful talent. And Gary started dividing up the, the different sports among the seven remaining photographers. And I came to him at the start of the season and said, I want to cover hockey. And he said, go for it. And so um, after, at the end of the season, when the playoffs started, I said, am I still on? And then he said, yep, you're still the one. And I, I stuck with it um, through 23 playoff games and, uh, and truly enjoyed it. And, and it is a challenge. And I, I hope that I got better as the season went along and learned to anticipate what was happening and... Uh, I would uh, watch the goalies a lot and watch them twitch, and when they twitch, I'd twitch, and hopefully shoot a picture at the same time. And I also, it, it made a lot of difference to just listen to the crowd, and as the noise level of the crowd went up, I'd know that something was about to happen, and um, it, it helped me to get some of those really good moments of the game. So I, I truly enjoyed it, and uh, I hope it showed. That is really cool because I didn't know that JB wanted to go shoot hockey. I just found that out just now. Thank you. Got a question? Thank you. Uh, I want to echo what was said earlier about the great coverage from the Post-Dispatch. I'm a subscriber. I read it every day. And thanks to all of you for your work. And Roger took a little bit of my question, but I want to ask JB. During the game, where do you position yourself to get your pictures? And do you ever use those little holes in the glass? And the second question is, somebody would just comment a little bit about our friend Brad Marchant in the finals. Thank you. Um, if I'm covering the game by myself, I shoot from overhead. At, at, during the regular season of the Blues game, I shoot from one of the alcoves uh, between 117 and 118, uh, where I'm facing toward the Blues bench. And that way I can see both ends of the ice. I can shoot both goals. Uh, if we add on like we did during the playoffs for home games and we have more people shooting, then we have the opportunity to, to shoot from the holes. And the, the holes are, are very low percentage um, because the action only happens for a brief second in front of that hole. And it, you may get a wonderful photo from right there, but the rest of the game is going on over 75% of the rest of the, the rink. So I like to shoot from overhead just so I don't miss anything. Now they would like someone to comment on the rat. Ben well, Fred? Yeah, he... Uh, You're the oh, chronicler. Yeah, I wrote about him because I'm, I was just fascinated by him, and I felt like he was going to be a major key character in the series, and, and he was. But, I mean, we were all in there in Boston when he would have his little press scrums, and you wouldn't... Most athletes... You can see them coming. They're, they tend to be taller than your average sports reporter. Um, not Brad Marchand. So you would almost kind of see this parting of the media sea, and you'd just see this little kind of guy walking through, and he'd be saying things like, 
excuse me, ugly guy coming through. And like he's a total cartoon of this of this character and he, he just leans into it. And he and he is really, you know, opinionated and he's very kind of almost funny until the series started to turn and then he started getting shorter and, and a little bit meaner on the ice and he kind of starts tripping people and, you know, uh, hitting people in the knees. And really every time the Bruins would complain about something, you know, they would they would just oh, these calls are unfair. And it's like, are you guys watching film? Like, do you see? How can you? It's like a parent complaining about their kid getting bit in class when, like, the, their kid is, like, leaving teeth marks in everybody. Like, you can't, you can't be the one complaining when you have that guy on your team. And I don't think there's, there's so many crazy little stories to this postseason, but one of the biggest ones has to be, you know, the Petrangelo goal in Game 7. Benjamin recently wrote about it, but... The fact that, that, that he beats Brad Marchand on that play, and the Blues beat him twice because was, uh, he was beaten on the play. He's disappointed he got beat. He goes to the bench with his head down thinking, okay, the period's over. And it was Alex Petrangelo who sped up the ice and scores a goal as a result. So a lot of symbolism there. He's the kind of guy that everybody would love to have. If Brad Marchand played for the Blues, you guys would love him. I guarantee it. But when he's, when he's on the other team, he's very, very easy to hate, and he loves that. It's fascinating to me. If, if, if I could just add one thing, talking about Marshawn, you know, when David Perron showed up here in his white skates as a rookie, I don't know if you guys remember that, and his teammates took him into the locker room and they took a black marker and covered, colored his skates. Marshawn, or uh, Perron was every bit as much of a nuisance in this series as Marshawn was, and I freaking loved it. <laughs> We've got another question. I thank you guys. Um, you know, today we saw the two-year signing of Carl Gunnarsson, uh, which was maybe a little surprising, um, but great nonetheless. Just wonder if you guys could comment a little bit on what you think about um, the Blues do with Jake Allen and then and the rest of the free agencies and kind of your analysis on that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, for one, I, I think we've been writing since, I don't know, November, October, maybe that there's no way Carl Gunnarsson's coming back. Uh, so, so anything we say now, you should based on the fact that we thought there's no way they're going to resign Carl Gunnarsson. He is he is totally expendable. Um, I will say that uh, I think it's a it's a great move getting Gunnarsson back, um, and the, the fact that he came in at, at a at a much reduced salary. That the, you know, coming in at 1.75 after playing at 2.9 for the last three years. So that's, you know, you, I would not, there was no way you could have told me that both Jay Bomeister and Carl Gunnarsson were going to be back for the 2019-20 season. And this is probably not a good situation if you're Mitch Renke or uh, Wallman or Mikola or one of the young defensemen hoping to break through because all of a sudden, they got seven defensemen coming back, and these guys are looking at another year in San Antonio. As far as Jake Allen goes, uh, the Blues are in a, a tricky situation because as great as Jordan Bennington played, who knows what he's going to do? And uh, hockey history is filled with you know rookie goalies who did great, and then thank you very much, and you know they're they're back playing in the AHL. So it's the Blues can't go all in on Jordan Bennington and say he's going to play 60 games and we can have someone, you know, last year when they brought in Chad Johnson to be the backup. They can't have 
a Chad Johnson level backup again because you don't know what you're going to get with Bennington. So that being the case, you need a accomplished NHL goalie. You need a guy who has played in the NHL, has played successfully, and can be a number one because you just don't know for sure what you get with Bennington. So you either keep Jake Allen unless he doesn't want to be here and says, trade me, or you've got to get someone a lot like Jake Allen because you need to have an experienced backup who's played NHL games. So that being the case, if Allen is willing to accept that role, and Jake's enough of a competitor that he says, I can, I think in a head-to-head battle that I can beat Jordan Bennington, and he's that kind of guy, and if he's not going to upset the apple cart when he doesn't win, and he's going to keep playing and keep being supportive, then I think you hang on to Jake Allen, unless some other team comes to you and says, we want Jake as our number one, we want to make a trade, and you can get something good in return. I think for that reason, Jake Allen would be back because if you have to go out and get another Jake Allen type goalie, you're spending the same amount of money. It's not like you're saving. It's not like they can't give Billy Husso the job yet uh, as being the backup goalie. So you know, you're going to be paying that guy three, four million dollars to be the backup. If Jake Allen's good with doing it, then I think you stick with Jake Allen. So unless somebody else, unless Carolina, some other team says we need a goalie. What can what can we give you for Jake Allen? I think you, I think you see Jake back again. I just want to point out how different things are uh, from last year. Last year, remember, no one wanted to write as free agency was approaching. No one wanted to sign with the Blues. Remember that and free agency. Now, no one wants to leave the Blues. Bowmeister and Gunnarsson and, and and Tommy and I were doing the math today. They both took pretty substantial pay cuts to stay. Now, granted, they're on the downside of their careers a little bit, but they're still both very highly effective players. Last year, Carl Gunnarsson and Jay Bomeister made $8.3 million combined. They will play next year for $5 million combined. So they, something about it, maybe the fans, maybe the coach, whatever. And, and what we're seeing in terms of the entire team as they enter free agency they have a very distinct possibility of returning basically intact next year as defending Stanley Cup champions with the same group that won it all. That is unheard of in major professional sports. They had uh, tendered be, uh, nine of their 11 restricted free agents, meaning they basically play for the Blues or they don't play at all. And seven of those nine that they, they tendered they're all regulars from the team. They're players like Bennington, Sammy Blay, Sunquist, Sanford, Barbashev. So they'll all be back. So I think the only danger is if they get fat-headed. And I don't think uh, uh, the, the coach that everybody calls the chief, I don't think he's going to let that happen. So I think they're going to come back a hungry, motivated team and, and come back intact. And again, it's, it's really, really rare for uh, defending champions to basically be able, have the luxury to bring everybody back. Got another question? Yeah, I'll direct this at everybody. Uh, do you think there's enough sidebars that this will end up being a movie? And which one of you guys are going to write the script? Benjamin, 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, we, we've all talked about it. Ben Fred wrote a column about specifically that idea. This, even if the Blues were the best team all year and swept throughout the playoffs, it would be a huge story for St. Louis because it was the first Stanley Cup win. Oh, but they were literally the worst team in the NHL in early January. Then a fourth string goalie takes over, and you all know the stories. And it, it is one of the most, I, I hope, like I always think about the ESPY Awards, um, the Oscars of, of sports uh, for ESPN, and uh, my Oscars. And basically, um, I hope the Blues get like all the awards for best team, best this or that. Because if you break it down, there has not been a story like this in sports, I don't want to say ever, but it's very, very hard to compare. You think it's a Hallmark Channel uh, movie? I, I think I think honestly this could this could go straight to Netflix. <laughs> you gotta hit, break out the censored button for for Baruby. Yeah. Who who plays Baruby in the movie? Like an old grizzled Nick Nolte or who? Yeah. Do we get Bruce that? Willis. <laughs> it's Bruce Willis. It's Bruce Willis. Uh, yeah, I've got that. Yeah. I've got that down already. And Robin Williams would have played me, but now it'll be Elijah Wood, Frodo. I've got another question. All right, so I just want you guys to all think back to the time last December, maybe, when the blues, blues weren't doing too good, and what your attitude was then, and how it changed over the period of when the Blues changed. Yeah, I can tell you, I kept insisting on our podcast, they should be beating people. I was with Tom Timmerman and Jim Thomas on our, our podcast. Every week, I'm like, they should be beating people. One of these days, they're just going to pound somebody. I couldn't believe that they weren't winning. I, I just was astounded, and I, I, I had just no explanation how this group of players could, could fail to do what their potential was. There was a, a, a game I covered in I want, January, December or January. The Blues lost to Calgary. It was an afternoon game. And, and I, I go back and I read that story uh, every now and then uh, be, because I, they were terrible that day. And the, and the players in Berube admitted they were terrible. And, and, and I think I ripped them in that story. And, uh, but nobody argued with it. Nobody said, no, you were, you were out of line on that one. Um, no one, no one you know, was, you know, was complained I was overly critical. But you know, for me, somewhere in, in mid-January, as that winning streak got going, um, and just looking at the analytics numbers, which said that they were producing so many expected goals per game, and, and it was consistent, and they were doing it every night. And it was like, you know what? This, this team is playing at such a level that they can keep this up. And at that point, I thought, well, they can make the playoffs. And then once you make the playoffs in the NHL, anything can happen. You just have to get in. And then once you get in, you know, it's a matter of matchups and who's hot and what goalie plays well. So, for me at least, in, in mid-January, once, once I kind of convinced myself they could get in, that anything can happen at that point. There you see good matchups, bad matchups in the playoffs. Who knows how it's going to work? Um, but I look back to yeah, the games in December, and it was like, you know, they were just bad. But the other thing about them being bad was that they were never bad for a long period of time. If you look back, teams like Nashville, Minnesota, they would have eight-game losing streak. And the Blues never did that. The Blues never lost like more than three in a row, even in their darkest times, because they would then play like they should 
and they would win a game. And they'd say, gosh, this is, this is a team that could, that could win because they play really well. And then they would go out the next day and they would lose miserably. Uh, I remember being in, in Winnipeg, and I think they, they had lost a game in overtime to Edmonton the night before. I was walking to the rink, which was amazing because it was like January in Winnipeg and it was probably 12 degrees outside. Chris Kerber and I were walking to the rink and, and he, we were talking about how the season was going on. And I said, I remember saying, this team though is so unpredictable. They lost to Edmonton yesterday or the day before. They, they could go out and beat Winnipeg tonight. And they did. They went out and beat Winnipeg one to nothing. I, you know, at that point in time, Winnipeg was playing as well as any team in the league, and that just summed up to me how totally unpredictable this team was, but eventually they became predictable, and they, they were playing at a level that they can win, and became to a point where every, almost everything said, well, they could win this game, they should win this game, and they started doing it. So for me, like in, in mid-January, as that winning streak got going, it, the, the tide shifted certainly at that point in my mind. You know, when the, the team got hot in February and March, it, we'd be in the locker room and players would say, boy, and you guys all gave up on us. N- none of you guys thought we could do it. I said, yeah, I was, I was one of them. So, I, you know, I, can, I confess. This was a team that couldn't win more than two games in a row, and they ended up winning 11 in a row. So it's crazy. I told Gordo that they should take uh, outtakes. And, again, he, he did think the talent was much better than their play, but just some of the stuff we said about the, uh, the Blues back in uh, October and November on the Netfront pre- presence. Uh, that, that might make for some, some good listening right yeah, that, we, uh Those were depressing podcasts back then, about nine or ten in a row. I have just be yelling at Jim, why can't these guys win? Or yelling at Tom, why can't they win? You tell me what's wrong with them. And, and then Tom turned them around in Orange County, pretty much gave him a talking to. And, uh, I did? Yeah. The, the, the Los Angeles loss yeah. it was a bad one. They blew it, but then a day later in Anaheim, they, yeah. they, they got it going. And uh, Russ's they, history. Yeah, there was. Hey, Tr- Tracy, where are you at? Out I'm there? right over here. No, over there. Oh, okay. Hey, let's. Uh, if you guys don't mind, can we try to go a little more rapid fire here so we can get some more questions? Absolutely. In? Here we go. Listening to like the radio or um, any of the other analysis from some of the local media, you hear the term St. Louis being disrespected, um, not given their due. You guys were just talking about how the team has evolved over the season. Um, I was wondering, in terms of your conversations with other media members from as the seasons progressed, how maybe other people's opinions about the Blues has changed in terms of seeing the team like. Jeff, you were, you were talking about in the podcast, this team should be better. They should be beating people. I guess probably the better way to ask the question is, were other people seeing that as well and looking to you guys to say, like, what is going on with this team? And then if I could, real quick, JB, the images that we're seeing here are phenomenal. I was wondering if you could maybe comment quick on a couple of images that really stand out to you during the playoff run. Well, as far as the perception goes, I remember the NHL Network guys saying, everybody was saying the same thing, this team is too slow. This team was badly constructed. This team is out of step. And and even one guy saying the team's going to move. It could be in Houston. That's how dire things were earlier. And because people thought initially there was excitement, but then the team was too slow. And everybody was saying this horrible mistake and pointing out Maroon and Perron and O'Reilly not being fast players. So, but I do think by the end of the playoffs, I mean, the last 
place into the playoffs. A lot of respect for that. And I think there's a lot of respect for the individual players. Now, NBC still can't get Alex Petrangelo right every time. <laughs> but you can give it another year or two. But what about some of the images, you guys? Well, uh, first of all, I, I actually didn't finish my uh, from the last question about uh, shooting from up above. I should have gone on to say that because you fans got so excited during the playoffs, I could no longer shoot from those alcoves because you stood up through most of the game. So I, along with the other photographers, had to move up to the next level, almost to the club level, and we were all on ladders. And so I shot all the playoffs from, uh, from Boston, or yeah, I guess it was just the Boston series. Where I had to stand on a three-step ladder and shoot over the fans, and even then, when you guys would raise your hands, then I'd still uh, miss a few good shots that way. And in Boston, they've got a nice place for us to shoot up in the one of the suites, but the TV guys got the first row, and we got the row right behind them. So I was shooting right over the top of the head of a TV cameraman, and thankfully he never raised his hands. But as to your question about uh, uh, pictures that I remember, uh, one I, I really liked was um, uh, a redirect by Perron, and I happened to get it just at the instant when he was redirecting the puck into the goal. I thought, wow, how did I get that shot? So, uh, so that was one of my favorites. But then at the end, I, I'd, I'd watched Whitting, uh, Winnington at the, uh, Bennington at the, uh, into the San Jose series, and he had no reaction at all. It was like just another game, and he just stood there. And I was so worried that he might do that same thing at the end of the Stanley Cup. And so I was watching him, but at the same time, I was trying to watch the bench, and I was going back and forth, and the reaction was actually much better of the guys watching the clock tick down and those final seconds, and they were all like just little kids. The expressions on their faces were just wonderful. And uh, there was a little bit of reaction from Bennington, but, but not anything like the rest of the players. I would say Colton Pareko basically knocking out Ben Bishop with that shot, which uh, uh, Ben Hockman had so much fun writing about. That was amazing. It was like a knockout punch in boxing. All right, I've got another question back here. Okay, so what effect do you guys think Barkley had on the team? You know, they were fighting back in practice. And then, have any of you gotten the chance to interview Barkley yet? Well, I personally was one of the few people that was displeased with naming, uh, naming the dog Barkley. I, I respect Barkley Plager and the whole Plager family, but I wanted the dog for the St. Louis Blues to be called Arf Butcher. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, but honestly, like when you have a team like this and you have a run like this, there's so many elements to it that are off the ice or off the field that make it great. And we think back to 2011 with the Cardinals and Happy Flight and Tordy the Tortoise and all those things. And, and here with, with this team, everything from Barkley the Dog to Gloria the Song to, of course, the emotional story of Layla. And, and then and down the line with all the players. It just kind of adds to it, I think. Uh, who gained more weight, Barkley uh, during the run or Pat Maroon? <laughs> tie. It's a tie, actually. I noticed Barkley's getting kind of big. Yeah, he's a big boy. Yeah. He's growing up. We've got another question. 
at what point during the season uh, would you say that there was a culture change in the locker room where you could see that they were going to close out more games? Was it the coaching change? Was it the uh, insertion of Bennington? Was there a culture change in the locker room where they began to win more games? Was there an instance that you can point to? It, it didn't lead uh, initially to more victories, but something was different, and the players in Berube have referred to it many times on that West Coast trip right before Christmas. They played Calgary, Vancouver, and Edmonton. They won two out of three, and uh, on, I think it was December 23rd, they beat, a, as you know, a very good Calgary team in Calgary and just totally shut them down in the third period. Totally frustrated one of the most powerful offensive teams in the league. And you just, and it took a while for it to translate into all those victories, but I, I, you just had a sense that something was, was changing. Yeah, I think, I think with the arrival of Jordan Bennington, that whether the team in Bennington's first games felt they had to play more solidly defensively because they had a rookie goalie in that, and so that, and, but once they started winning games with Bennington, the, that's, that's where the attitude changes to a team that was like waiting for something bad to happen, to a team that was expecting good things to happen. Because before it was, you get to the third period and it's what part of Jay Bomeister's anatomy is the puck gonna bounce in <laughs> off of? And, and then it got to, but then it was like, no, we're, Biddington will make the save and then we will come down and score a goal. And, and I think they saw that uh, happening, uh, you know, in that, from January on. Got another question? Got two quick questions. First one is, uh, what is it going to take to improve the power play? <laughs> yeah. And the second one is, when are we going to hang number 44 from the rafters? Hey, Gordo, let's you start with the power play. Yeah, that's another familiar topic to those who listen to the Netfront Presence uh, podcast. But I was going to ask, uh, you know, like Barube, well, what are you, who are you going to add to the coaching staff that's going to fix the power play? But coming off the cup and announcing his uh, contract and didn't seem like that was the, the time to wonder, shouldn't you add somebody to fix the power play? Because he didn't see it as being as big a problem. I always got upset because I, I watched that and nobody ever seems to get the puck in a position to shoot. Everybody's on the wrong side of the ice or not in a position to shoot or they're going to do something. I mean, it just was driving everybody up in the, where it's easy to see hockey plays develop in the press box, it drove you nuts. So they did get some, up until the final, they were getting something out of it, but uh, I, I think that at least gives us something, to some negative, small negative point to, to bring up next year. Hey, before we get to the number 44 question to the rafters, how many of you out there were upset when you saw the Blues go on the power play? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wanted five on five. There was a stat. I think they were like the first team since 2011 and one of, I think, three teams in the last like 50 years to win the Stanley Cup with the negative, negative power play goal differential. And they're historic in their ability to overcome a terrible power play. It's yeah. remarkable. You know, as for 44, yeah, it's a great question. I think a lot of eyebrows were raised when Chris did a promo as part of the pregame uh, deal at, uh, at Enterprise because he's working for Florida right now, but... Uh, he wants to be a GM someday, so, you know, a Hall of Famer and, and certainly had a great run here, you know, with, Ke with Al and all the other greats, uh, he certainly stands tall among them. Got another question. Thank you. 
And thank you guys for your coverage throughout the season in addition to the playoffs. Uh, a lot of us fans, most of us fans, um, you know, we were, we were there through it for the, with the Blues since the, the bottom of the barrel days. So, uh, but it's supposed to be out some behind the scenes. Uh, so going to game three of the Western Conference Final, the hand pass game, mm-hmm. um, show, what, give us some insight. Um, we, we, we got to see the players' reactions, Chiefs' reaction, NHL Network stuff, but uh, was it really that white and black? Um, we saw Bennington's reaction on the ice. Uh, so to hear you guys' thoughts about the team, and they clearly bounced back, but it'd be great to hear you guys. Yeah, I just remember, you know, you have to get to the, to the locker room, the dressing room from the press box, and I can remember going down the elevator thinking, this is going to be chaos um, because it's just going to be a dressing room full of players, and it's going to be open season on the officials. By now, they will have seen the replay. They obviously know what we know. It was a missed call, a huge missed call, a missed call that you know has now been changed. You've seen the rule changes. That's going to be reviewable now because of that play. It wasn't at the time, and, and these guys are going to go nuts. And I would have loved to see the video, you know, the behind the scenes of what Bruby said before those doors opened. <laughs> because they were, it's like they had a shock collar on. Like every time, every time they kind of wanted to say, yeah, we got hosed, there was kind of like this little twitch and, and they just, and they reset to like, well, we gotta be, you know, we left the game on the table. And they didn't, you know, really Alex Petrangelo, and he makes a point to talk first, because he sets the tone. Bruby talks to the team, Petro talks first. So he sets the tone with the understanding that his teammates are gonna follow. And he kind of let himself slip a little bit. He had that line about maybe we're playing with different rules. And that was really all you heard. I mean, Alexander Steen would not even acknowledge that it happened. Like, he had been, like, men in black memory erased. And I remember thinking then, like, this is incredible because everyone expected to same like, you know, this could be a moment, as Gordo mentioned, where the season drops out. And how can you recover from this? And this is a legitimate reason to fall apart. And then to, from, from them to go and outscore the, you know, the Sharks 12-2 to two after that and not lose a game, uh, I think that it really showed we did it's, – it's hazy when the Barubi effect started. You know, we had a gentleman ask about that, but that was when it showed that it wasn't going to fade away in the postseason for me because they had every reason to dissolve, and they, and they came back out and not only said it, but they meant it. And from that point on, it seemed to me like the Sharks were almost more affected by the hand pass yeah than the Blues were, because now they're fielding questions about how lucky they are. It was like the third thing, as you guys remember, that had happened that went in their favor, and their coach, Pete DeBoer, is getting snippy about luck, and, well, we don't, we're not lucky, and it's like, come on, man. Like, you literally stumbled into a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. You can admit you're lucky. It doesn't mean you're a bad team, but they kind of almost started getting nervous about it, and the Blues just blew past it. I thought it was a huge moment. I think we were all, as journalists, like disappointed. We were, we were waiting Absolutely. for the yeah. one in the blues. Like, here you go, let venture spleen. And nobody did. And it was like, no, it was like an empty. We're like, what, what do we do now? The only, <laughs> the only chaos was by the officials who immediately huddled in their room and sent out a league representative to block the door and told us, you know, like, so we're all waiting out there. Like, you guys have to respond to this. This, and this is all over the place. It can't not be addressed. And they're telling us, well, you know, go in this room and wait, and we'll have someone come talk to you. Well, that's rule number one. You never go in a room where you can't see them leave. And eventually, sure enough, ironically, after the post-game TV broadcasts are over, 
the officials come wheeling out, escorted by security, and there's like some really awkward, you know, comments that were were made, and, and really the the comments to the pool reporter that night were were more damning, I think, than the, than than they even realized. They, they had basically hung themselves out to dry, and I thought, you know, I'll give. I know Gary Bettman is not cheer, cheered much. He gets booed all the time. He got booed in Boston, but I'll give him credit for it. Eventually, owning it, you know, and, and the, the league commissioner owned it and said he and said that they had to get it fixed, and to their credit, it sounds like they're going to get it fixed. You know, they, uh, it was almost with the exception of Petrangelo, uh, what he said, it was almost as if the players were handed a script. Okay, this is what you're going to say. So I'm leaving there. As Tom said, we're all disappointed that they didn't go crazy. Usually you can count on someone like Perron to go nuts. <laughs> but I'm like, okay, it's easy to talk to talk. Let's see if you're this unaffected by it when you have to come out on the ice the next day. Well, as you know, they won the next three games, and the cumulative score of those next three games was 12 to 2. So the Baruby effect, when, when a coach is effective, he sets the tones, and the players all buy in. And that was really drove home the point that this is his team. I mean, we knew it before then, but it really drove home the point. It was, it was amazing. I, I thought they were good they were going to crumble after that game. Next question. Uh, you guys have the unique opportunity to provide nicknames uh, for players and certain lines. And I just want you guys to promise, as an avid reader of the Post-Dispatch for my whole life, that you'll never nickname a line the perfection line. <laughs> like those pompous Boston writers. Okay, and would one, of, would one of you statistical types like to recite their statistics, even strength goals in the finals, the perfection line? Oh, One or zero, right? Yeah. One. One goal, yeah, yeah. Incredible. He's referring to the, the top line of the yeah. Boston Bruins that Ouch. the Boston media refers to as the perfection line yeah. or anything but perfect no. in, the, in the Stanley Cup final. And that's why a lot of the writers on Press Row, not all of us had Con Smythe votes uh, I think you could argue, of course, that Ryan O'Reilly deserved it, but a lot of smart hockey people were saying that Colton Pareko and some of the defensemen deserved Conn Smythe votes for the way they shut down the per perfection line. I, I, got, um, I got a little bit scorched on Twitter myself for making a little fun of the perfection line. Boston fans didn't like that very much. <laughs> It wasn't. It wasn't just them though either. Like I remember, I looked this up at some point. Every top goal scorer for each team they played in the in the postseason, every regular season goal scorer, there wasn't. I don't think one that was a plus player in their series against the Blues. So echoing what Ogman said, Pareko and those guys were excellent, and not just in the finals. I mean, their defense, their goal suppression was as good as as good as their power play was bad. <laughs> well, it's, it's hard nowadays, question. by the way, to make up nicknames for lines because they, they especially for the blues because they're never together very long <laughs> by the time you know two weeks that's ah, a new group so baruby at least has shown more consistency maybe that can happen going forward but certainly it's there's just there's not together long enough got another question not not to belittle the referees and my question is is based on the, the way the speed of the game has increased in the last few years and probably the play of the game has increased more being in the corners and behind the net as compared to from the points. Do you see something that needs to be changed as far as where the refs need to be positioned 
or do they or have have the referees drop the speed that they're not they're not able to skate with the speed they need to to keep up with the players? Well, I think they've one. I think they've gotten a lot better. I mean, if you how many people remember Ron Hogarth? I remember, remember Ron Horrible, Ron Hogarth, Hogarth or. Uh, you know, I mean, just go back, uh, Mick Magoo, Mr. Magoo, yeah, yeah. So they've gotten a lot better. I think some of the stuff they're doing, like uh, like getting a major penalty right. Now, there weren't a lot of major penalties last year, but they did blow some, including the one big one in the playoffs. So that becomes one of the reviewable plays where if they feel like, I'm not so sure about that, who got them with the high stick, you can review that. Now the officials can. Uh, is, I'm going to rethink the major. I can go and look and rethink it. So they're trying to help them as much as they can. One, these guys have gotten better, but two, they've also gotten more support, and now they're getting more of a way out if, uh, if they didn't quite see something. Because like you say, the game is so fast, and these guys are having a hard time staying out of the way sometimes or seeing the play. And I do think there are improvements coming. Yeah, I think one of the tricky things, I mean, it's a game that in many ways would be better officiated from up in the stands, from up high, because it gives you more of a view that the referees don't always have on the ice. But you need to have someone on the ice that says, that, that can warn somebody, keep doing that, it's gonna be a penalty. Stop doing that. If you remove that situation, you, you, can't, you, you don't have that anymore. And that's something that, need, that the league needs to have. You need to have preventive refereeing to say, You're, if you do that again, I'm gonna call it. And you can't do that from a higher vantage point. But from a higher vantage point, that's the best place to make so many of these calls because you can see it much better. Well, many of the games that I'm at, it seems like there's a hell of a lot of good officiating going on up in the stands. (laughs) (laughs) I've got another question. So we've talked about Barube and how he, like, bounces back from a loss or the hand pass, per se. Do you think that how Bruce Cassidy handled the Bruins players and the media, say after the Bozak game where he tripped Achari and Perron scored the goal shortly after, do you think that affected the way the Bruins' like mindset was going into the next game? I mean, you can make that argument. I mean, it's, it's hard to say that on both ends of it, both the Bay effect and the Cassidy effect, it's hard to say that one man can literally affect the mind of all 25 on the team. But yeah, there was there was kind of this idea of like, well, we got we got we got hosed by that play, and otherwise, of course, we would have won. And you know, maybe we in the other 49 states, if you will, point out Boston arrogance, uh, whereas they're like arrogance. No, we're just better than you at everything. Um, I, I do wonder if there was some of that where they're like, you know what, we're supposed to be winning. We're the Boston Bruins. We're the perfection line. We've got an unbeatable goalie. We're supposed to be winning. And now the refs are, t- are, are not allowing us to do that. And then you wonder about how that permeates in between the, uh, the ear flaps. Mm-hmm. Do we have another question? There it is. I'll ask another I was just wondering what y'all's favorite goal was. Mine was the first goal in Game 7 where they 5 hold Tucker Ask to jump back from being in the defensive zone pretty much the whole first period. Any of y'all's favorite goals by the Blues? I'll, I'll, I'll jump in since I had to go last on the last one, on the, on the first question. Um, my favorite goal, I mean, the, the Petro goal is going to be the one we're talking about for, for forever, to be honest. Uh, that and the Bennington save in Game Seven; those, those are the statues, if you will. But but the uh, the Patrick Maroon game winner, 
Patrick, we were talking about a movie, right? I mean, this, this character is a key character in the movie, a local kid who grew up in Oakville, beating up his brothers, pretending he was a St. Louis Blue. They literally had a makeshift Stanley Cup that they used to play with and win in their basement. Well, here's Patrick Maroon, the kid from St. Louis, of course, scoring a double overtime goal to win the series against the Dallas Stars, and now he was literally hoisting the real Stanley Cup in his hometown. Well, there's so many. We've talked about the, uh, talked about blowing up, Preco blowing up uh, Bishop. That was pretty cool. The third goal in the game seven was amazing. I you know Gunnarsson, one timer, yeah. man. You know, boom, boom. Yeah, I mean, just that. See, he what he he got the puck in a position to shoot, and he shot a one timer. It can happen. Even Carl Gunnarsson can do it. Now, just <laughs> I'm not saying put him on the power play, but no, you're saying put him on the power I play. Just, that's the kind of shot that can win a game. It's he just he shot it right away, and it, it, that was something. JT JT and I are fighting behind Tom's back over which one we're going to pick, but. Uh, um, a cork, I'm going to steal, I'm going to be a cheat and take two out, because no one's going to mention this one, but I thought Robert Bortuzzo's backhand in San Jose yeah, was just yeah. hilarious, because it's like, I don't think he could do that again if he was asked, like, on a sheet of empty ice, and it's like, <laughs> there, was a, there was a god in his body, a hockey god descended upon him, but in terms of most important, I think we, we often forget about the, the, the early series, and Schwartz in Winnipeg, um, that third, that three-goal third period, the one that he kind of hit in the air. It was like more, better contact rate than half of the Cardinals right Ooh, now. Oh, you see. Um, I, thought, I oh. thought that was pretty impressive. And he, I'll stop there. Ooh. Ivan Barbashev has more hits than most of the Cardinals this year. Wow. Oh, oh. Sammy Blay, actually. <laughs> um, I, I was... It, this is what I you see. He took two, and so he took mine. As, as, as I was going to say, Jaden Schwartz's goal with 15 seconds to go in Game Five uh, against Winnipeg, because right there, that that just changed that third period. If you want 20 minutes that changed the blue season, it's that third period in Game Five. They're down two nothing, and they come back and, and and win the game, which is something that we support wouldn't have happened in October, November, December. You know, but they did it there, and to, to win that game in regulation, not have to go to overtime, because once you go to overtime, it's a crapshoot. Anything can happen. Game can change on a, a not an undeserved goal, but that one with 15 seconds won that game, and that, that sent them on their way. I'm out of goals. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, what, what game was it? That Tarasenko did the one where he kind of he was sliding past and he bent back and slapped that one in. I can't even remember the series. You know what I'm talking about? Where he just contorted his body and bent I think it was back. Er, I think it was early in Boston. Yeah. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, it was early in the Stanley Cup final. Yeah, and Brad Marchand got lost on that play and uh, two on one and then followed through on the second shot. Yeah. We got another question. I have a question about uh, leadership in the locker room. We've heard the stories about players rallying around guys like O'Reilly and Petro, but behind the scenes, was there someone that stood out to you guys or someone that may surprise us? Maybe, and he was the first guy to get the cup from Petrangelo, maybe Bowmeister. Remember, he was, he was so bad at the beginning of the season. 35 years old, coming off hip surgery, and he just, I mean, come on, show of hands. Who thought he was washed up back in November? 
And also I want to ask, since we're here, the person who said they would get a Bowmeister tattoo if the Blues made the playoffs, are you here tonight? Anybody? Did you get the tattoo? I, I sure would like to know if he got But I, I, I want to say uh, Bowmeister because he was, and, and he, he gets benched in Toronto. And Bowmeister is a, he's a still, he's a huge name in, in Canadian hockey. He's played on gold medal winning teams uh, internationally. And for him to get benched in Toronto, that's the capital of the hockey world, I mean, it was huge. And I don't think he, Mike Yo was still the coach. This was very early in the season. I don't think he told Bowmeister that he was benching him before he told us, because weeks and weeks after that, uh, after Bowmeister had risen from the ashes, he, he, he told me he didn't, and he didn't elaborate, but he told me he didn't appreciate the way Mike Yo handled that, his, his benching. And for him to go from that, and as uh, Tom was saying, there were games one where it bounced off his rear end, it bounced off his skate, it, and it, it, it happened like almost every other game, and it, it, it was like, some athletes don't know when they're done, and they don't know when to retire. And for him to go from that to that shutdown pairing with, with Colton Pareko, as, where, where they were taking every team's top line and just nullifying him, it, it was just it was amazing. It's part, it's a microcosm of the entire Blues season to kind of rise from the ashes and, and win it all. And Bo Meester also is the oldest looking 35-year-old man I've ever seen. <laughs> And all the players say, if they were stranded on a desert island, they'd want to be with Jay Bowmeister. Now, this isn't anything kinky or perverted, but it's just because he's from Western Canada, and he can do everything. He camps, he can make stuff, he can probably, you know, whittle or whatever, and they would want to be with Jay because Jay can, can, can fix stuff. He's the Canadian MacGyver. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Thorburn played a minute 52 this season. He played three shifts in the third or fourth game of the year and then got sent down to San Antonio and spent the rest of the season there. Blues called him up right before the final game of the regular season. And you never saw a happier group of people to get a guy back in the room than to have what the Blues were like when they saw Chris Thorburn come back. He is a guy that is just loved by his teammates. Um, you know, for a guy that made his career out of getting in fights, I mean, he is just loved by that team. And when they got him back, it just, I mean, they were already on a, on a high by then, but they were even higher. And it, just his presence just brightened up the room. He is perpetually cheerful. He is just a, he just is, he puts everybody in a good mood. And that was exactly what that team, I think, needed going into the playoffs was someone to lighten the mood. And he did that. Chris just cheers everybody up and they love him and he's a great guy and his career is probably over, but the last thing he got to do was you know, raise the Stanley Cup on the ice in Boston. And you know, when they brought him back, and they called up a bunch of guys from San Antonio, and they gave Thorburn a locker in the main dressing room with everybody, and other guys were shunted off down the hall because they don't have enough room in the main room, but they gave Chris Thorburn a, a locker stall in the main dressing room, which they didn't give to the other guys. No. Okay. Folks, uh, we're about to wrap up for the night. Uh, before we do, I want to put one person on the spot, and that's Jim Thomas. Um, 
As most of you know, as post-dispatch readers, Jim spent many years on the Rams beat, covered Mizzou before that, two years ago came over, took over the Blues beat. I think he's one of the best hockey writers in the country right now. This year, and last year, but this year, like going through this Stanley Cup run, when you talk to JT, he's had an enthusiasm like a child at Christmas. He's been having so much damn fun. Jim, can you just sum up for me your feelings about covering this Stanley Cup team? When I, uh, when I took the, uh, the beat and I said it on the radio and I told my family, just kind of having fun with the Blues Stanley Cup futility, I said I will not retire until the Blues win the Stanley Cup. It's on my phone after the Blues won the Cup and my son and daughter-in-law, Jim, Taylor, say hello back there. There you go, there you go. They sent it to me, and that, this was in Christmas uh, uh, 2017, so I was only on the beat about four, four months. So I had these visions of the headline, Blues win cup, 95-year-old sports writer can now retire. You know? <laughs> but it happened. I can't believe it happened. Similar to the Rams, you just go day by day, game by game, and all of a sudden you look up and your team that you cover is in the, uh, the Super Bowl or in the, in the Stanley Cup. And it was just a tremendous amount of fun. No, I'm not retiring right now. You know, I'm not going on forever, but, but again, without someone like Tom and, and some of the other people helping me out, it just made it so much, uh, so much easier. And uh, again, it's one of the fun parts, as anyone up here will attest, to be able to cover not just a world champion, but just the way it happened and for the deserving people out here, it was just, uh, you know, it's the memory of a lifetime. Thank you, Jim. As I wrap up here, folks, I want to once again thank our sponsors tonight, uh, Scotsman Coin and Jewelry. I want to thank all of these guys for the tremendous dedication they show, the hours they work. I mean, you wouldn't believe how much time they spend doing this job, and they do it because they care, they love it, they want to deliver the best product. And most of all, and I mean this sincerely, I want to thank all of you because we couldn't do what we do without people like you. And, you know, I, I would appreciate it if you would share with your friends. Come to the Post-Dispatch to read it. If you want the hockey coverage, we're the only independent news organization there from day one till the last day of the season. Thank you for making it possible for us to do what we do. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you, thank you, thank you.